out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't mean maybe. Wow, I'm so excited. I can barely have time to do the setup here. Thanks for joining us tonight, uh, Tracy. we got quite a show. In the 10 o'clock hour... Uh, we're going to have the Chicago Soul Review live in our studio. I'm really, really actually did a sound check. Uh, very excited about that from the Untitled Supper Club here in Chicago. And making his fourth annual appearance on our show at 930 will be our friend John Sauce with some of his Christmas music. And our first guest, I feel like I've known you forever. It's the first time I've seen you face-to-face. Tracy Bain, the new publisher of the Chicago Reader, Chicago's free weekly since 1971. Thanks for joining us, Tracy. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Isn't this fun? Yeah. <laughs> it just gets better. So talk about the reader, just for somebody who maybe is in Pella, Iowa, listening for the first time. Talk about what the Chicago Reader is and how you arrived there. Well, the Chicago Reader was one of the first, if not the first, free weekly newspaper in the country. It really tried to set publishing on its head um, and provide an alternative to the mainstream media of that of that era which really wasn't covering the younger generation very well certainly the music scene the theater scene the alternative work that was happening in chicago that was just being ignored so it came out of kind of a very radical progressive past um over time it became more part of the mainstream um than than its early roots but it has had many different lives and phases over the years and i'm i can't even believe that i'm the publisher of the reader to be honest because i'm a chicago native and i was eight years old when it was started um so it's really an honor to be part of that legacy and see if there's a future for the reader in chicago um, talk about what the reader's gone through, peaks and valleys, and where it's at now. And one reason we wanted you on the show tonight about the membership drive, which, which I joined. Excellent. Yeah. So, <laughs> so talk about yeah the highs and lows and where you're at right now. You know, the reader had a very long, consistent past for many, many years. The original founders, and, and it was really kind of a very successful publication, one of the most successful alternative weeklies, certainly in the country. They had readers in other cities. They were affiliated. And there, there was a significant change for a few reasons. One is it was sold, um, and it was sold many times over the last few years. And different owners had different ways they tried to destroy it. Um, and some of them were out-of-towners who you know, kind of cannibalized it, thought they could have some synergy with other cities, and really almost killed it. Um, the latest owner was the Chicago Sun-Times, and they they really had to focus on the daily paper, right? Having two daily newspapers in Chicago is pretty miraculous at this point in history. Um, so I don't, I think it was um, not intentional, uh, just benign neglect, because if you're putting out a daily newspaper, focusing on a weekly newspaper that's a little bit different in spirit, it's hard to, it's hard to focus on. So when the, when Edwin Eisendrath and team saved the Sometimes and the Reader a year and a half ago, I think there was this um, intention to think about how the reader plays in the bigger city. And I had had some early discussions with Edwin about that when he was first purchasing the Sun-Times. But that kind of fell by the wayside until a year or so later when it was becoming very clear that the reader was either, it was going to either close or get severed from the Sun-Times. So then what happened next? And how, how they re- did they recruit you? Did you find them? How was that marriage made? You know, it was very weird. Um, earlier this year when there was a really racist cover on the 
on the reader. Um, I heard about that. About, yeah, um, <laughs> featuring uh, our new governor, um, then candidate Pritzker. Um, I actually reached out to Edwin and said, you know, I'd be happy to come in for three months or so and just kind of take a look at the reader, look under the hood and see if there's something that can be changed or salvaged about the situation. And I actually put together a team of people. We were getting very serious about purchasing it. But then I really, I had to walk away because I realized that they wanted me to come in immediately and take it over and own it. <laughs> But I wasn't ready until I explored it more. I didn't want to come in and then have to close it in a month. So I backed away from the deal. That's rare in journalism, not to jump in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, and I'm pretty impulsive, let yeah. me just tell you. Um, but it was, it was one of the best no's I ever said, because I do think it would have folded very quickly, because I had, I can work as hard as I can, but if I don't have the resources, forget it. So I kind of let it lie um, and uh, was kind of relieved over the summer. Every time I saw a reader box out there that needed to be replaced, I was like, oh, that's my, that my problem. Um, but by the end of the summer, um, a deal had been announced in midsummer with a group of owners. But by the end of the summer, it seemed like the deal was actually going to be falling out. Um, I got a call from a union representative for the Writers Union, Writers Guild, and they said, hey, you know, would you be interested in taking over the reader? It was like a hot potato thing. And I said, you know, I actually had been, but I can't really talk to you because I signed a non-disclosure. I'm going to call Edwin and let him know if it's still in play and somebody has the money, I can do the work. So within two, three days, uh, Edwin and I were talking. He introduced me to the people that were interested in buying it, and we had they hired me within like two, three days. I had a business plan already from the spring, so it kind of worked out really, really well. Um, Dorothy Lavelle from the Chicago Crusader agreed to come on board as chairman of the board. She's still running her uh, two newspapers and the National Association of, of Black Publishers. And uh, another board, other board members were put together, and then we set out hiring a few of the gaps in staff, including a sales manager, business people, editor in chief. Um, and then uh, it took a it took a few weeks for the deal to come through, but we eventually, by October first, took over new ownership, and by mid November, we moved into offices in Bronzeville. Yeah, where's your office now? So the office is in the near South Side at twenty nine thirty South Michigan Avenue, which is in the Bronzeville area of Chicago. Boy, I got so many questions for you. So the membership drive, what does that entail? What do people get? What will it do? So, you know, this is the first time the readers kind of appealed to um, up the public. It, we want to have various revenue streams. We know that newspaper print advertising is changing um, and morphing into other things. Um, so we want to have multiple ways that revenue is coming in to pay the bills at the reader. One of those is a membership drive, which we launched about 10 days ago. We've had more than oh, really close to a thousand people donate so far. Anywhere from a dollar and up, you get your name in the paper in late January and a thank you ad. Fit $48 and up gets you a membership. Um, Kristen Kaza from Slomo, Slomo is coming on board as our events manager for next year. And she, used to be at the Reader doing events a few years ago. So we're really excited to bring her back because she understands what the Reader Reader is much more even than I do coming from a totally different kind of publication. So we're going to have various member exclusives, early access to tickets, hopefully member-only events and swag and things like that throughout the year. So if people join now, it gets them a membership through 2019. It's on uh, our website at chicagoreader.com, just forward slash backer. And you can go on there. And again, if you just donate a dollar, you get your name in the paper. Excellent. Excellent. That's why I donated. I, I, <laughs> I miss having my name in the paper. <laughs> um, so it's important for people to know your background. So you're co-founder of the Windy City Times. That right. was 1985. Right. So I, talk about that. And it's going to be a two-pronged question. And, of course, what 
from that did you bring into this? Right. So in, in, in 1984, when I graduated um, school, the journalism degree in, in Iowa, I came back home to Chicago as an openly gay person who was told by my professors that I would have no career in journalism. So I first started working as typesetting, um, which luckily I didn't stick with because that died in a few years, yeah. but um, even sooner than journalism. Um, but you know, my mother actually had heard about a job at Gay Life newspaper. They were looking for an entry-level reporter, and knowing the typesetting equipment actually was an asset. So I could come in and do all the things that needed to be done for a small paper. Given the attrition rate at small papers back then, I was managing editor at, at uh, Gay Life at age uh, 21. And then in, in 1985, uh, when I was 22, the... Um, some of the people from Gay Life were starting a new paper called Windy City Times. So I went on board as the founding managing editor of Windy City Times at age 22, and it was pretty much one of the most hectic and crazy times um, for certainly the gay community of Chicago. Um, there's a new novel out called The Great Believers, which um, the author, Rebecca Mackay, interviewed myself and other people from the 80s and really got a great sense of what the um, the trauma that was going through a community that was in the middle of a war that the rest of the country didn't even know we were fighting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And elaborate on that. Well, well as a the, journalist. Yeah, as, uh, you know, as and, a journalist, and, yeah. the reason was, uh, of course, because of HIV AIDS. Right. Chicago was hit a little bit later in terms of the wave of um, death uh, than San Francisco, New York. So we were able to learn a little bit from their their um, successes in terms of education, but also the the pushback on, for example, closing the bathhouses, which were actually a great way to educate people and provide condoms. So Chicago never, for example, closed the bathhouses because it was a, as it was an educational tool. So, you know, again, I was very young and many of these, these people, and it was mostly gay men and um, African-American, white, Latino, Asian, that were passing away within weeks of diagnosis. Um, the co-founder of Windy City Times, Bob Bearden, got diagnosed with HIV within a month of our founding the paper. There were no drugs, no, nothing to be done. You know, people were basically do- taking aspirin um, and dying usually within weeks. Bob hung on for a little over a year. Our travel writer got diagnosed and died in a week. Theater reviewers, people that we were covering, people we were part of. It really was uh, very much like a war zone and has kept me very motivated in the work I do for all these years. I've never felt a burnout level or anything because I feel like I was so lucky to have witnessed and given voice to the people that most of the media was ignoring. I want to talk about that in a minute. we got to take a break for some spots. And uh, don't go away with uh, Tracy Beam of the Chicago Reader. So your brother's bound and gagged And they've chained him to a chair you please come to Chicago just to sing? Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we're pleased to have on the show Tracy Bain, the new publisher of the Chicago Reader. How does that sound? It sounds very weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, so many questions. I mean, so Windy City Times, what experience there? What what things happened there that you can bring into the reader today? I just think surviving. Yeah. You know, I uh-huh. mean, being a weekly LGBT newspaper from 85 to still currently publishing was n- never easy, uh, ever. Um, so I think being able to balance and juggle and learn from mistakes as well as the good things out there, I think that's what they saw translated. It's a weekly for-profit paper. Not that it's ever made one, yeah. but at least it pays its bills. And so the I think that's what the owners understood is I understood weekly for-profit journalism and and had done many other kinds of things, nonprofit fundraising, the gay games when it was in Chicago, I was the co-vice chair. So I'd had a, 
weird set of experiences that lent it other than just being a journalist i mean you were an activist I was you an activist. Are, I, 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 in many ways, an, I, I founded the March on Springfield for Marriage right, Equality exactly. when I was pissed off when the vote didn't happen. So I have stepped outside of that. And at the Reader, I'm very much on the business side. I'm not on the, the editorial side at the Reader. At Windy City Times, I was both. Um, and I'm 90% owner of Windy City Times. But at the Reader, I'm not an owner. I'm the you know hired publisher to work on the business side of the paper. So let me ask you this. We were talking in the break. Um, you went to Lane Tech. Yep. You were at your school paper. I was an editor. I actually don't okay. remember what I. I mean, I know I wrote for it, and I edited uh, the re- the yearbook as well. So, um, and even when you were saying you were openly gay when you started at, at what twenty one when you started writing and in journalism, um, what did and uh, I was thinking about this when I was involved with my I was editor of my school paper, and I think at a young age I I learned about. Um, expressionism and, and empathy and things like that. What did you learn getting in journalism that early? Well, I even those, went back. qualities. I even was doing journalism at age 10, believe it or yeah. not. I started my grammar school paper at, at Walt Disney um, when we were peas in a pod in an experimental model. So, you know, because my, both my parents were in journalism, I think it, it obviously created that as an opportunity in front of me. And my mom was a very independent journalist, and my stepfather, Steve, was very much in the traditional Tribune. And I would go visit them at both of their offices. For my mom at the Chicago Defender, I would go do layout with her and at the yeah, printer. Yeah, talk about that. Don't Let's not roll over that. Your mom was at the Chicago <laughs> Defender yeah, when? Af- yeah, after she was at the Tribune in the 60s, she became managing editor of the Chicago Defender, which in Chicago was an African-American daily paper at the time. Now it's weekly. Joy as Darrow. A, yeah, Joy Darrow. Uh-huh. She was a white woman. Um, she had worked on redlining in Chicago with... with um, Dempsey Travis, um, who was just an amazing national advocate, um, is, and she worked on his book, Autobiography of Black Chicago, and so she had all these connections into the African-American community, and so she became managing editor, and I did a kids' consumer column for The Defender when I was 10 years old. So I, I mean, I just <laughs> I write. Didn't know that. Yeah, I can find them in the archives. It's very funny <laughs> on um, bike safety and stuff. Um, and then at, at Lane Tech, um, I was basically a reporter for the paper, and I did typesetting and photos for it. And I covered, you know, the Iran hostage crisis. I would poll my fellow students about that. This was 1976 to 1980. There was plenty of mainstream stuff that we covered in the Lane Tech High School paper that they probably wouldn't, you know, they might have censored in other eras. We did the same thing in Naperville. We did that too. We tried to cover real news. Yeah. And be a mouthpiece for the administration. Right. Yeah. It was It was very good. We had a great journalism professor and I also worked in the print shop. I always feel like the reason I survived in, in journalism very for as long as I have is because I knew the tools of how to produce it. So it didn't intimidate me. I I knew how to run these refrigerator size. I actually knew how to run hot lead linotype machines from Lane Tech High School. So I understood the how it was produced. I, it demystified it for me. That uh, whole part of producing a publication wasn't intimidating. We were talking before we went on the air. Uh, talk about your parents. And, and I told you one of my questions is going to be about the, the role of women in media in the 70s and 80s. I'm not even talking about uh, yeah, LGBT. Just the, the, some of the experiences your mom had. Oh, my mom had some of the worst experiences trying to be a serious news journalist in the 1960s. You know, she covered Hank Aaron's rise to to prominence as a as an African American. She she was so empathetic to especially the situation of race in America. 
and she covered Martin Luther King in Birmingham. She covered Martin Luther King at Marquette Park in Chicago, which was even more terrifying for her. Um, and she just, she just tried so hard to be a journalist who mattered and, and the world of journalism didn't want women to matter. So she fought against that and she never was able to stay in one place as long as I have been. And I have been in one place because of her, because she showed me the way of an alternative media that you could survive. And she met your father? Through she journalism? met my stepfather in uh, at the Chicago Tribune in the mid-1960s. Uh, my parents, my, my father, Hal, is a photographer. He's still with us. Um, my Steve and Joy have passed away. But they met in the 60s. He stayed on for 29 years at the Tribune. He left a year after she passed away. And then he went down to Key West and was a journalist there. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Go down to Key West. Um, empathy, you know, it's just... Uh, or you know, and how much is a reader going to get involved in, in social media and tweeting? I mean, sometimes it takes time to develop empathy and remember empathy. I know empathy is important for you, and I mm. talk about it. It's yeah. Just- it's well, a, we have a social media team yeah. at The Reader. We actually have the first director of digital media, a managing editor for digital, Karen Hawkins. We just brought a managing editor for print on, uh, Sujay Kumar. And Elizabeth Moore is the uh, the editor-in-chief. So we those are the three new hires in editorial. Um, Brianna Wellen was brought in on social media. And then we've also obviously brought more people on the business side as well. So we definitely are engaged. They have great social media numbers at The Reader and really terrific engagement on email. Yeah. And um, so... Before we take a break for David Jennings, you're going to hang around. Yep. You're going to hang around, listen to some Christmas stuff and Absolutely. hear some live music. So talk about the membership drive again, you know, how people can get involved in it. Yeah, it's uh, com and forward slash backer. Again, you give a bucket up and you're going to be in an ad if, at your choice. You can certainly not have your name in, but if you want your name in, let us know. Um, and you can do it. You can also mail it in to our address at 2930 South Michigan Avenue, Suite 102, Chicago 60616. Literally a dollar and up and you get your name in print. Real quick, um, how long have you been on the job now? Since 1984. I mean, with the reader. Oh, the reader, uh, about three months now. Three months. Any, any big surprises? What surprised you so far? You know, it was a really heavy lift to extricate ourselves from the Sun-Times, all the software and uh, the people and just all of that. And, and it is a union. I've never worked f- with a union. So I think there's just been a, a great learning curve, but I love a challenge and none of it's been insurmountable. Um, I think it's the offices are fantastic. Elsie Higginbottom and Leonard Goodman are the new owners. They've been terrific to work with and the board um, has also been great so so far so good um you know i'm i'm at their at their leisure of hire so i'm gonna work my butt off for them as long as they want me you're the best uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks thanks for coming down and you're gonna hang around and we'll yep. be back with some uh, john sauce and his christmas songs after david jennings and the news